Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. It's Helen here, the voice of Azu, Enola, and Laverne. Today, I'm here to tell you about Woe Begone, a podcast launched on the RQ Network. Woe Begone is a weekly horror sci-fi audio drama series about the nature of power and the implications of linear time. Woe Begone follows Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Woe Begone, spelled woe period begone, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. Have fun and see you later. Hello and welcome to the Rusty Quill Gaming Podcast. We're coming to you today with a, another metacast, a bit of behind-the-scenes info. Today we're talking about starting a campaign. Yes. Uh, I am your host today, yeah, Brendan Rowe, and with me I have... Alexander J. Newell. I've been usurped. Uh, for Probably once, usurped. this is my show, I'm running it, and I will be talking to Alex and getting all the behind-the-scenes info from him. Um, so today we're, t- we're talking about starting a campaign, and what we wanted to do is talk you through everything that happened before the Rusty Quill Gaming Podcast really started. Uh, you know, it, it may look effortless, but I can tell you from first-hand experience that Alex worked very hard to make sure everything happened Ish. and <laughs> e- e- everything we needed was in place. Uh, and I'm going to talk to him a bit about all those things he did, and hopefully some of that will be useful to any of our listeners who want to start a game of their own. Want yeah, to start we'll, we'll try and make it nice and generalised. Campaign. And maybe you'll um, learn everything you need to give it a go yourself and start your own game, uh, we hope. And if you do, let us know. Come on our forums. Well, we, we've already had people getting in contact with us. No, they have. Oh, brilliant. Which is great. People like, fantastic. oh, I started my new game. And you know who you are. I won't say your name, but I know I, I, I am meaning you specifically, and you know who you are. I want to know more. Let me know what happened. I'm genuinely curious. We'd love to hear any stories you have of the games you've been playing and anything that's uh, anything about Rusty Quill that's influenced you. Um, that would be very exciting for all of us to to know that there were people who who had done things differently based on our advice or oh yeah our example. So we've got a few things to talk about today, uh, but yeah, we'll just talk about how 
how we ended up at session one, effectively. Sure. Now, you might remember if you listened to our other Metacast, uh, our, the thing we labelled episode zero yes. was another behind-the-scenes Metacast. Mm -hmm. That was talking about the characters we made, but that was talking very much in the numbers sense and the, the mechanics of it all and the yeah. rules of it all. Well, and it, was, it was very intended for um, people who've never even played the game before to actually understand how the heck we ended up with, yes. with something, a, a maths story, I suppose. Isn't yes. <laughs> there's, there's sadly a lot of maths in role-playing. Um, so we're going to try and avoid that today and talk about sort of all the other aspects you need before yeah, you yeah. before you sit down to uh, play your first game. Um, and the first thing you need, really, is a bunch of friends. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was the hard part. The yeah. rest came easily, but finding some friends was really difficult. Uh, it's something we've all struggled with at times in our lives. Yeah, um, I, I find free alcohol and lots of provided food is really, really useful. <laughs> we don't drink while recording. Oh, no. You, I mean, you can role-play with any number of people. I have found from... Extensive experience. I've I've been role playing. I think since I was twelve. Yeah, you've been role playing a lot more than I have. Um, and I'm now thirty one, so that's a fair old time. <laughs> um, and pretty consistently for those almost fact, twenty years. I am absolutely certain because I met a couple. You're you've been RPing longer than some listeners have been alive. Oh, in. that's kind of sad. Isn't it? <laughs> Never mind. Um, I found in my extensive experience that um, the best size for an RPG group is three, four, or five players mm. and a GM. Um, four and a GM tends to be the ideal, and obviously that's yeah, what yeah. we've got for Rusty Quill. Three works pretty well. Five can be fine as well. Smaller, and you start to struggle to kind of do everything you want to do. Larger gets very unwieldy there very was, quickly. There was one person I knew um, who ran a campaign session briefly with 12. Oh. It was intended to branch off into separate storylines, but he had a real trouble, real, real trouble. I think they ended up spending a significant amount of time digging a hole because the tendency of people to go off on one and sort of tear it apart to see see behind the curtain when it comes to the campaigns get very deconstructive. It's, it's very difficult to just manage that many people, to give them yeah. all yeah, enough yeah. time to be heard and to influence the story and to enjoy themselves. And, I mean, the other thing is, if you, again, if you're a listener of our podcast, you'll see that fight scenes take a little while. Oh, yeah. They, unfortunately, just the simple rules of the situation mean they take a while, and that gets so much worse the more characters you throw in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the other thing to bear in mind is, for every new person, don't get me wrong, I, I like playing with, with a decent number of people, but the problem yeah. you get is it's about focus, and you have to have every single person in that has to be Absolutely. willing to have less and less focus time. Yeah. So if you're playing with six people, I've, I've done it and it can work, but you need five other people, including yourself, who are like, yes, I'm quite happy to have one sixth of the time and spend almost all of the time watching other people yeah. do stuff, which, yeah. is, which is a fine way to do it, but... If you're wanting that limelight, you know, it doesn't gel well. Yeah, I think I, I once played a, a game where there were six PCs, six player characters, and we did one fight scene that lasted an entire five hour session, yeah. um, which was about a minute of in game time. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. Uh, it got pretty ridiculous. I did something similar with a group of four, except um, three of the people had versions of Time Stop. So time stop is a spell for listeners which literally allows you to stop time and you know run around, do things, and then time restarts. But when you have three people that do it, what you end up is stopping time, doing a whole load of combat, stopping time, doing a whole load of combat, stopping time, doing a whole load of... And suddenly you realise that what you've done is you've spent, yeah, three hours on an instantaneous <laughs> moment. And that's the most extreme L version I've ever seen. Literally no time has yeah, passed. Yeah, no time has passed and everything's been... Like, that's the Brilliant. most extreme version I ran Brilliant. into. Um, so I think you knew from the very beginning that you wanted four players. You, yes. you decided, yes. 
I think most people would say that playing is often more fun than GMing. I, I've certainly enjoyed GMing at times. Mm. Genuinely, it, it is, you know, it, it's a bit of a sacrifice because the GM has to put in a lot more effort and you decided that you were going to GM the game. Sure. I mean, ultimately, long term, I'm probably going to end up passing over GMings sometimes to other people and things like that. And um, We've already done recordings where that's the case and it's fine. It, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I'd say... Main reason I picked to do GM is there's a couple of reasons. One is, and this is a great piece of advice, if you can GM, you will always have a gaming group. Yes, yeah, you will definitely. always have a gaming group. If you don't know how to GM, it's worth looking into it because then when you're when you're hankering and there's no one around, you can just make your own group. Yeah, and people will come if you can GM. Yeah, and don't be afraid to get things wrong. In my experience, the first few times I GM'd, it didn't go very well. I didn't write good games. Like it's one of those things that requires experience, and I'm sure you found similar that you've gotten better the more times you've done it. Yeah, I cut my teeth on a lot of very very long campaigns. So I'd say the you can you get into habits with the kind of games you play. So if you GM a lot of one-offs, you end up doing things very quick, very short. Yeah, and if you try to do something longer, I guarantee you the first thing that you'll do is drop everyone's backstory in the first 15 minutes of the first <laughs> game. And you'll be like, oh, there's, there's nowhere to go. But similarly, if you do long burn ones, my habit, which is great for podcasting, terrible for one-offs, is I massively underestimate how long things take when I'm planning. So it means that the bright side from the GMing thing is that you can end up planning, I don't know, um, oh yes, this will last two sessions and it lasts you ten. Great. Yeah. That's eight sessions yeah. that you, you got that you didn't realise you needed um, you didn't even need to plan for. But on the flip side, on a one shot, it's terrible. The number of one shots I've run that never finished. Yes, yeah, yeah. Just because I ended up making something that actually would last over five I, or something. I found a lot of the time I would plan loads and then my players would do something completely different anyway. And sure. so it's it's worth it's worth talking to your players a bit sort of outside the game too, to just check in on them and make sure that you're not planning something they're going to ignore. And yep. that if you have some at least small idea about their intentions, it allows your planning to be more useful and more mm. likely to get used. I like doing open world things where yeah, characters yeah. can choose where they go. But what I also will say is please choose in between sessions so that I can plan things up. Not because you, you can't do things on the fly. It's more a case of you will always get something more depth in depth and it'll be faster because you can look up things ahead of time rather than on the fly mm. so I will always say okay cool you can go anywhere you want you can do anything you want but build plans yeah, and I absolutely. know that built plans can be the boring part of play which I really strongly advise getting people to communicate with one another outside of games yes, and making their plans absolutely. passing them straight onto the GM who can sort of coordinate to it um, if you're trying to keep secrets from your GM to make the game more winnable I strongly advise you not to do that it because not, it will impact your game negatively. It should hugely. absolutely not be about winning. I mean, role playing is, you know, about the experience and the story. And if if your goal is to win, someone's going to lose. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and it might be you. <laughs> it swings both ways, actually. I've known plenty of GMs who weren't willing to lose, mm. which means that they weren't willing to let the players win. It's it's an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. So you knew you wanted four players, yes. and how many people did you contact? You contacted quite a few initially I, I to get go, to quite gauge a interest. Of people. Uh, the thing that you'll find when you're setting up um, gaming sessions is a lot of it comes down to logistics, yeah, and it is just timetables and things. So I contacted geeks I knew, performers I knew, and um, comedians I knew, voice actors I knew, things like that. And then I made, uh, I basically made a Venn diagram. And there is one criteria which I had, which is not actually you know a normal criteria for gaming, which is I had mm. to make sure that everyone had distinct enough sounding voices. Yes, I, I worry a bit that I sound a bit too much like a cross between Ben and James. I always think I sound about 16 years old, <laughs> perpetually, forever. 
And, you know, if you're hoping to set up your own game, find some friends. Like, you know, they don't have to be people who've gamed before. No, you know, um, obviously I've done a huge amount. Ben's done quite a lot. Lid's done a bit. And James has done almost none in the past. Yeah, James is, James um, is a bit of the wild card because it was <laughs> he knows so many people that I know and uh, had never managed to get drawn into the gaming thing. <laughs> and, you know, that's obviously part of setting up a new group is in potentially having players who've never done it before and having sure. new players. If you don't, if you literally have no friends who want to game, then obviously the internet is a great resource to find gaming groups and find people. And you could even come along our forums and ask people there if they oh, can yeah, find totally. a gaming group. I mean, actually, I run a long campaign entirely online, which is a way of doing it. It can work. There's a few... I've played some online games I haven't enjoyed. There's a few but... hang-ups. A few tricks that I learnt was if it's possible to get things via something like TeamSpeak rather than Skype because right. it uses less bandwidth yeah. and things like that. Also, you need to have a group who are really good at taking turns speaking. And I used to use Google Docs as battle maps. It's a free alternative. Don't nice. get me wrong. Yeah. There are a lot of really well-made, now paid, online tabletop setups, some of which even factor in like the chat aspect and things like that. I, I strongly recommend you check them out. I was on an incredibly tight budget and I used to do it all via modified Google spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. So I would um, alter the size and do it like that. But that was in order to carry on playing with a gaming group where we went to different countries and yeah. spread yeah. out across the globe. But in general, I'd say it's much more preferable to play it in person when, when you can. It's yeah. a yeah. vastly different experience. Um, yeah, so you know, we've all I, I've known James a long time. Yeah. Um, we first met at university, but obviously, and I've known uh, Lid for a few years, and I've known mm -hmm. you for a few years, and then obviously the rest of us only met Ben because of this podcast because yeah, he yeah. was he was someone that only you knew beforehand. But. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was I'd made the point of getting people who I knew could perform. Yeah. And game. But that's because this is for other people to listen to. Yes. Um, it, I'd say it, it makes for a pleasant experience. I've, I've gamed with people who are lovely, lovely, lovely people, but are, are terrified of the whole performing thing, which is fine until it becomes to RPing, and then some of them are just terrified to do it, which is fun. <laughs> they love role-play games and hate RPing. I mean, the, the most difficult part, really, in putting a group together is is simply scheduling it. And we said that, you know, yes. we were saying that the, the people who ended up in the podcast were the ones who could absolutely commit. We... We play every once every two weeks. Yes, and that's so. That's how often we we record and play. Now, I have found in the past that it's very difficult to achieve that level of consistency. And I've played in games where it was once a month. Yeah, which is a, is an easy schedule to stick to, but it means that if you ever miss a game, suddenly it's games are, months, are huge, huge huge times apart, and you forget things. It, it's hard to keep things going when it's when it's that rare. In my experience, when it's school or uni, you can maybe be pay, playing a game once a week. I've known people who went Absolutely. off the deep end and played a lot of RPGs. Yeah. Back, back at university, I played most of the games I was in played once a week, and that yeah. seemed fine. But it's it's very difficult to sustain as with the rest of adult life going on. I think with once a week, you end up with shorter sessions, and it'll be with a group that you've known for a very, very yeah. long time. For the newer things, the uh, sort of once a fortnight model seems to be the best in my experience. Yeah, so if you're thinking about starting up your own game... I would go with once a fortnight. Yeah, but do consider that very carefully because that is can be the biggest rock. Like Doing it every week, people are going to miss them. It's going to feel like it takes up a lot of your time. Doing it every month might be great, but it's hard to maintain that momentum. Yeah. So, so get a schedule your group can stick to as I mean, best as there's, possible. There's one way around that, which is the binge game, which is where you get a bunch of people together and you go, right, I have a free weekend. You have a free weekend? Yeah. Yes, I have a free weekend. And I've done that before where it's you start yeah. Friday night and then when uh, Monday morning rolls by, you've spent effectively an entire weekend 
have lots of food. You will run out of food. <laughs> have lots of drink, and you'll run out of drink. And open windows periodically. It's <laughs> my yes. health advice on those. Yeah. So once you've got your group together, I think the next thing that comes along is we, we talked about choosing a GM. Like one person, you, you can't force someone to GM because it's it is a lot of work. So someone has to volunteer, and hopefully you've got someone to volunteer. I would say you should have a GM before you have a group, really. Potentially. Or yeah. there are many ways of doing it so that you can effectively pass GMing. It's a knack. I wouldn't advise it first time out the gate, but certainly I've had mercenary bands where they would roll the GM from one session to the next, oh, so that then it's like each each mission was GMed yeah. by a different person. Yeah. Uh, I was a big fan. I ran one a long time ago. If you ever saw the TV show Sliders, right? Yes. I used to yes. do one where we would slide, and every time there was a slide, you were in a new world, it was a new GM. Nice, nice, and, yeah. And yeah. uh, it, it, hel it helped because it meant that people could dip in and then dip out. Yeah. But it's it's not a very sustainable thing. The thing with GMing, though, is you GM. It's an enormous amount of work. The players need to appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. And they don't call the shots. Ultimately, if, some, if there's someone who is, you know, who is making the game terrible for everyone else... Effectively, yeah, the GM, there's a lot of diplomacy involved yeah. in GMing. There's a lot of sitting people down and going, look, that character, I, I, I really think it's going off the rails or things like that. It, it is it's your responsibility to keep everything running smoothly. And sure. that can be both in-game ways and out-of-game ways, But it comes with a trade, which is that it's not your responsibility, which means that you can't have fun. Yes, absolutely. Don't, I've, I've seen that happen. Don't get yourself trapped in a situation where you're GM, GMing because you should rather than because you're yeah. enjoying it. If, if you're not having fun, it's not going to last. If you're not having fun, stop. <laughs> so you need to make it enjoyable. The other thing I find about GMing is it's exhausting. I remember mm. at the end of a session when I play, I'm a little bit tired. Like, you know, role-playing is always slightly more energetic than I'm, I expect it to be. Yes. But, uh, but if I've GMed a session, like, it's hard for me to do anything in the evening after an afternoon session because I just don't have the energy a lot of the time. Yeah, i got to admit, that was the, that's the thing I find quite hard. So bear in mind that while I'm GMing, I'm also running all of the audio yeah, equipment. a lot of tech which work is, from Alex um, as well. A lot of, you won't, it won't pick up on the edit and so on, but there's a lot of time where I'm, I'm simultaneously GMing and running all of the podcast equipment. He's basically get, got a big sound desk behind his chair, it's, which you it's know, a he, lot has of work. To, he has it's, to use whilst... GMing. Yeah, get good at thinking on your feet if you're going to GM. Yes, absolutely. Because no matter how obvious you make that doorway, they are still going to look for a window that isn't there. And sometimes <laughs> you've just got to concede the point and give them a window. Yeah. So, and then it's, I mean, really it's got to be the GM's choice, but once you've got your GM, and this can come earlier when you're starting to put the game together, but you've got to choose what you're going to run, what yes. game it's going to be. Yes. And, and there's, there's two sides to that, really. There's system and there's setting. Do not confuse those two. Which often come together, Very much but so. can be completely separate. Yeah. What is system? So system is the set of rules that you're using. So ultimately, RPGs are collective storytelling, yeah. which I have done groups where there is no system. However, yeah. it, it requires a certain frame of mind and not many people can just dip into that easily because it requires a lot of ability to allow bad things to happen to a character you yes. care about. You have to be willing yes. to... Um, pass focus and just take a back seat and a lot of these systems are developed to facilitate that mm -hmm. and there are various different types of systems there's d20 there's dread which uh, we got to play a game of as a little bit of a spoiler but ultimately there's lots of varying systems but they're very independent from setting or they can be a lot of the time they're tied together i mean most of the time equated. you know the companies that publish systems and settings publish them together yes and you do get you know 
you do get the you get a big book which includes both the system and the setting and the company will tie a lot of the elements of the two together yes but you can separate them out again mm -hmm. setting is the trappings of the world the plot lines the the story if you put it in computer game terms it starts to make it very very clear let's think of um, a game that a lot of people would know say bioshock mm. ultimately it's a shooter a shooter is a type of game but that that is not giving you the whole thing of yes. what that game is about just as um for if you were playing something even more obvious like call of duty for instance it's also a shooter but those two are not equating and it's because the yeah. difference is the setting it's those aesthetic trappings it's the story behind it it's the approach to how that story is told absolutely and it's separating out from what is the bits and bobs the nuts and bolts that make this car run to what color is this car what's it made for that kind of thing yeah and, I mean, even some of the most famous uh, systems, I, I mean, D&D is probably the most famous one, yeah. has a lot of alternative settings. Yeah. So you get Eberron, which is sort of the steampunk-ish yeah, yeah. world, and you get sort of Greyhawk, which is a much more traditional fantasy world, sure. and those, those differences. Um, now, we chose to use the system yes. of Pathfinder. Yes. So what, why was that? There are a choice? few reasons. Ultimately, the main reason that I chose it was it is the system I'm most familiar with. Yeah. And I've tried to GM with systems that I'm unfamiliar with, and there is a very steep learning curve that's rubbish to listen to. <laughs> so I was yeah, deliberately picking something that I, I knew quite well. Don't get me wrong. You will never know all of the system. Yeah, you, unless you, you play in it for years. You just will not. And that's fine. That's why you have these documents and the system references. And sometimes you just fudge it, and that's fine too. Yeah. But for Pathfinder, there was a few reasons. It was... It's a D20 system, which is very popular, but yep. it's quite streamlined. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, we will probably end up ignoring some of the most complicated rules. Certainly. And you're free to do that with most systems. You don't have to use every single part of the buffalo. Uh, yeah, I, I really advise you not to, in fact. Um, you won't hear me say that about any other aspect of life. But when it comes <laughs> to game systems, yeah, ultimately, system can give in to setting when it needs to. And that's okay. What I would say is watch out if you're doing it to break the game when you're GMing. If you're going to get people facing off against an unkindable creature that has a bunch of um, abilities that are just not part of what it should be able to do, that, that smacks a little yeah. bit of, of trying to have your cake and eat it. That's, you know? that's trying to win again, I think. Yeah, that I think be the so. Problem there. So I, I tend to make sure that the setting and the system match up. Yes, and, and, and that's... And a good setting and system will, and that's that's important as well. If they're if they're feeding into each other, you'll often end up with a better game. And the thing I found with Pathfinder is that it's massive. There's a lot of rules in there. I mm. mean, even if you're heading into the grapple rules, which I'm deliberately sidestepping a yeah, lot of the time. They're one of the most complicated um, bits. And certainly there are variants out there for cold shots and all kinds of things. But the thing with those is it's worth. I I chose it because you can modularize it in the sense of you can skip whole chunks of that rule system yeah. and the game is robust enough to just take that yeah. so you have a huge compendium of rules that you can pick and choose the buffet from mm, delicious yeah. and I, I, I mean uh, role playing settings come in different categories as well and sort of uh, Pathfinder is part of what, what I would refer to as the D20 category you know you get the mechanic is based around rolling a D20 yeah. and there are other categories of games where you know the mechanic is based around D6s or D10s or whatever one day there'll be the D1000 <laughs> yes one well, day well, knowing, knowing the variety out there there probably already is um, <laughs> now I mean D20 is again popularised by D Dungeons and Dragons D&D &D, and it has you know come through all the ver various versions and Pathfinder comes off the the, the 3.5 rules uh, but since 3.5 which I, was a game I loved 
uh, D&D have released D&D 4.0 and D&D 5.0. Yeah, we're, we're starting to fall behind. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> you know you can check those out as well. I, I haven't played much of either of them. Um, I've heard, certainly heard good things about D&D 5. I'd say they're pretty radically different beasts. D, uh, D&D, they are surprisingly different to each other. D&D 4 took a very, very specific route, which was yeah. trying to make it way more about story and really stripping back on mechanics. And I think there's a certain pendulum movement to it, especially in a lot of systems where it sort of goes... Big on rules, and then they'll go too fast. They'll go yeah. back to big on story. Maybe go a bit too fast, swing back to rules. So yeah. you always see that sort of swinging. Yeah, um, and but so we decided to go with Pathfinder, and remember that almost all the Pathfinder rules are available online. Yeah, the Pathfinder SRD has been very good to us and really yes. helped us yes, do this. Yes, it has. Project. I admit, I, I swapped onto uh, a paid app version. A couple of reasons for that is when it comes to the podcasting side of things, we have to turn off all the phones, all the devices, yeah. anything that can receive a signal. And unlike planes, where you know you kind of get away with it sometimes, I didn't say that. But in podcasting, <laughs> you really can't because you, you get a certain noises and interferences. So I needed something that I could access offline. Yeah. Because yeah. we were getting problems with the podcasting. So the SRD is great. Do not get me wrong. But if you are looking for an offline version, um, I do recommend the um, PF RPG RD. God, right. that's that's quite the name. Hard to remember. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, now, we didn't use the traditional Pathfinder setting, no. which is a pretty traditional, again, sort of uh, fantasy setting. And I think actually one of the best things about, and one of the things I've most enjoyed about Rusty Quill, is the the setting that you came up with yourself. Yes. And I'm hoping our listeners want to hear about it as well. But before <laughs> we do, we're going to take a quick break there. Okay, cool. Hello? Hello? Oh, I sit there. And, and talking to this? This... Right. Good. That is odd. Mm. Uh, yes. And you, uh, bring me uh, a whiskey. Uh, with a rum in it. Yeah, lovely. Uh, uh, yes, so, um, good evening, peasants. I am Sir Bertrand McGuffin. Now, I've been told the tales of my feats of heroism, adventure, and utterly selfless daring do were spreading far and wide, arcing across the sky like lightning, rending the heavens in twain with their magnitude and ploughing into people's ears like a plough made of me being splendid. Now, the important thing is that I'm excellent and everyone should know just how excellent I am. So in order to set yet more ears a quiver in anticipation of my every exploit, I would like you, specifically you, to tell your friends about how utterly super I am. Now, according to the technical busybods of Rusty Quill, and trust me, their bods are very busy, if you tell a friend about us and they subscribe to my tales of chivalric daring, then when they send us an email to mail at rustyquill.com with their name and the person who recommended it, they will have an episode dedicated to them. Now, I've no idea what that means, but it sounds jolly lovely. Anyway, once you've done all of that, all you need to do is pop the cash in non-consecutive bills into an envelope and send it along... What? 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 What do you mean they don't have to pay? Oh, I have literally never... Don't! You test me, sir! Fine, fine, fine. Well, recommend us to your friends and don't pay us and you still get your own episode. Now, if it excuse me, I have to have a serious chat with the underlings about the actual meaning of the word mercenary. Hello and welcome back. So Alex, tell us a bit about how you got to this point and some of the things you've put into this setting. So I think when it comes to setting, it's a rabbit hole. You can go really deep really quickly and 
you, and you find yourself giving names to NPCs in an obscure village, there's, there's, there's one a thousand chance that the party will even go near, <laughs> you, you kind of need to draw the line. So what I tend to do is I'll go from top down when making a setting, Sure. and I let, it tri let all the details trickle down because then when it comes to, oh, I need that small detail, you have that sort of trickle down, you can just pluck it because what would make sense? So what I'll, the first thing I'll tend to do is what kind of tone do I want for the game? And I'll know that before I start going into the setting. So I knew I wanted something quick, loose, fast, fun for Rusty Quill, sure. where there's a lot of depth to it people want, but ultimately you can skim across that surface and that's fine too because it's, a, you know, it's coherent. Yeah, it's, and it's useful to use well-known tropes when you're designing a setting because it allows people to fill in their own gaps and it means that you've got go-to places and, and things you can do if a gap turns up that you need to fill very quickly you've got something ready to sort of put into that gap because you're you're working with common ideas. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't shy away from sort of genre tropes and things like that. Absolutely. Just because, I mean, honestly, a lot of people play RPGs because they like them. They want them. They want to be that John Woo character who's wielding pistols, jumping through a church with doves everywhere <laughs> taking shots. They want to be that guy. Classic. So, yes, you could put a spin on it and have pigeons, but I'm pretty certain that a lot of people out there, they want the doves. And that's fine. That's okay. So, yeah, when it came to the setting, I went for big broad strokes, and there's a lot of stuff that hasn't even come up yet, because, I mean, the yeah. podcast hasn't been going and there's, that long. There are, there are some setting documents online, which yeah, I'm sure yeah. some of you will have checked out, but they, they don't go into too much detail. So, you, obviously, uh, you based it on a fictionalised version of the real world. So, yeah. why that, and why not, you know, a fantasy world well, more completely? There, there's a few reasons for it. One of which is... The world's a big and complicated place, which means yeah. you're not really going to fall short of inspiration. Oh, you need to go to Uruguay. Wicked. I can just look up Uruguay, look up all of the information, look up all, do all of this reading. Fantastic. I now have a huge amount. When you're heading into Talandor, which exists exclusively in your head, there's extra steps in there because you need to find that material elsewhere and plug it in. So, I mean, I'm not being lazy, but it gives you a lot of inspiration. Another thing I've said before is my geography is terrible. <laughs> like, really, really awful. I know a lot of things in a lot of obscure knowledges, but I do not have knowledge geography. So I figured, well, why not, you know, jump in at the deep end. And the other thing as well is it makes it more accessible. Uh, we've got James who've never played before, we've got listeners who've never played an RPG before. Sure. And it can be a bit alienating when it's, well, how do you not know the obscure thief hierarchy of this and incredibly And if we're starting to use niche... place names that are words people have never heard of, they're going to be harder to remember and harder to relate to. Exactly, exactly. The number of NPCs I've had with obscure names where I cannot remember what their name yes. is. And I named the character, so I find it easier to ground it a bit more. But I also deliberately made the setting uh, ahistorical. Completely yep. ahistorical, so you're going to be encountering, you know, characters who have. Have no... we even said what the year is? I don't remember defining exactly what century we're even in. Brin, Brin, Brin. <laughs> I don't, I don't subscribe to your narrow-minded view of centuries and yes. years. Yes, so Alex has warned me, and as much as it will hurt my, you know, my geeky brain that demands consistency, that people from completely different historical era, eras may well all turn up together at various points. Oh in yeah, the game. just kicking around, you know. I mean. Again, I find it useful, and here's, here's a tip when playing, when doing NPCs. I find it really helpful when dealing with major NPCs to tie them to famous people because you know what their voices sound like, you know what they look like. I haven't had to use this too much yet, but it's a great way to 
Just do an impression of that famous person. <laughs> your impressions are terrible. My impressions are terrible. So no one will know the famous person that you're well, referencing. if it's a historical famous person, hopefully there won't even be any recordings of them. Oh, so you can't I'm, be 100% sure. Oh, but what I'm talking about is stuff like, if you if you guys ever meet Newton, it's definitely going to be Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to cast it. And I find that really useful. It really helps. Sure, and it gives sure. you something to ref, refer back to. Um, yeah, so I start top down. Uh, the, I tend to split it into politics. Yep. So what's the politics of the place? What's the religion of the place? What's the geography of the place? I, I loosely do this one. What's the sentiments of the place? So that's more mm -hmm. like cultural things. So it's like, right. do everyone hate orcs? Yeah. You'll have noticed orcs haven't actually rocked up in the show yet. They will when they come and they'll have their own twist because I know what people think about orcs in this setting. Yeah. Yeah. And I know what people think about goblins in this setting. And it's those opinions and things like that that's important. And I will then do a lot of it on the fly, actually. I had a lot of training doing that, so I, I know how to do it. And you, you're going to have to learn to riff with it because your players will surprise you. Yeah. They really will surprise you. Uh, and obviously you've thrown a lot of magical and magi-technological yes. elements into this setting as well. Did, did those come from somewhere in particular? or? Honestly, I've admitted it before that there's an element of Eberron in there. Um, so Eberron, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a, a, as we were talking about settings earlier, it's a setting for Dungeons & Dragons and the 3.5 edition. Mm -hmm. And it specialises in, it tried to talk about the industrialisation of magic and other things. And let's assume that magic is real in this world. Why wouldn't you have harnessed it for the following purposes? Absolutely. And I like that element of it. I don't. I actually am not particularly married to that setting, but I like the idea of that coherency, especially given the players that I work with, where we've got uh, James who's specialised in his education in incredible amounts of depth of political history, yes. and I've got Lydia on the other side who knows just about everything about specific topics, so I have to make sure, obviously, that it's a coherent world that, yeah. that makes sense. There's a lot of fancy out there which can be lazy, and I don't mean that in a negative way, commenting on tropes, but I mean where you don't think about it. Mm. There are orcs in the cave. Why? Because there's orcs in the cave. But they, ha they have to be there for a reason. And if you're yep. playing with people who are interested in stories, every, po every person here consumes stories and narratives and they know the nuts and bolts and how they work and how they're built. So you can't get away with, there's a, there's a skeleton in this box. Why? Because there's a skeleton in this <laughs> box. Like it, you, you want that depth. And a lot of that will come from sort of knowing what you're talking about and taking time to just mull the world over yeah. and, and just don't dive in straight away. Just take a couple of months to just think about the world for yeah. a bit. And another element you've thrown in is in on the political side of this setting is that there are these ancient, powerful dragons that yeah. rule the human world. See, a lot of people... We've barely be... encountered these in terms of what's going on in the actual game, uh -huh. but because all the players read the, read the, uh, the backstory and it's started to come up just a tiny bit here and there, but they're, they, they're called the Meritocrats. Yes. So tell us a bit more about them. Well, I won't go into too much detail because that's uh, we'll be starting to we give some spoilers. Spoiler, yeah. But yeah, with the Meritocrats, a lot of the themes of this campaign are about responsibility on a big scale and a small scale. The characters are responsible for the actions that they do, but more importantly, you know, people. Large amounts of people are yeah, responsible for yeah. the things they do, and I'm dealing with that. Yeah. And when it came to the Meritocrats, it was a way of messing around with that a bit. And it was what happens when you take the responsibility for society out of that society's hands and give it to someone else. For, for those who haven't read the, the backstory information on the website, the meritocrats are these six ancient and powerful dragons who essentially are the royalty of the human world. And, you know, all, all political and governmental power flows through them. And so we'll be seeing, I hope, in the uh, upcoming 
uh, story, you know, is how our characters begin to interact with some of that, those structures. Well, it makes a lot of sense as well that ultimately you guys are level one characters. Um, the chances of someone meeting a, a great world leader... I think you'll find we're level two. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Even, even in the episodes that have been released, we're <laughs> level two by now. But that's my point, is that you're, you're so down the sliding scale yes, of people at this so. point. The chances of you rocking up and meeting the Prime Minister when you're still just sort of kicking around as a, as a low-paid, low, yes. well, no longer low-paid mercenary band, it, it doesn't really play out like that. Mm. But ultimately, you've got to trail the breadcrumbs. I worked professionally as a writer. Like, that's the thing I do. And a lot of that is you've got to learn to leave those trails of breadcrumbs, mainly because with RPGs, in order to sustain it over a long period, you need mystery. Yeah. It's not enough to just rock from one adventure to the next. You need mystery, you need intrigue. And the way that you do that is you dribble those plot you points. Need, yeah, connecting threads. Yeah, you just, drop, you just drop those points through and through and through. And with the meritocrats, is ultimately they're a very high-concept thing, mm-hmm. and it takes a long time to get there. Um, so you've got you've to build up to that. And I think it helps a lot if you're going to deal with a leader. In fact, here's a good GMing tip. If you're going to meet a leader... Have the party meet the people that that person leads before they meet that leader. It's a yeah. very different experience. If yeah. you just rock up and meet the king, you have no idea about the country. Oh, he's really, really friendly and nice. But yeah, if you rock up and meet the king and every other person who's lovely also has a an anxious tinge to them and everything's too clean and everything like that before you meet and it'll allow it to colour it, I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. Um, right, so you've now got your group together. You've, got, you've decided what game you're playing. You've got your... Uh... You've got your system, you've got your setting, and uh-huh. you know I, I'd encourage people to write their own settings. I find that even if you're playing an established game, if you're creating your own setting to go with it, you'll often have a more exciting and more interesting time. I think you'll care about it more. Yeah. I really do. It seems obvious that the next step is starting to make the characters. Sure. I mean, and that's really the final one before you start the game. However, I have to say, I think there's a really important step that comes next. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of groups skip over this one. I've certainly skipped over it in the past, and it has many times led to disaster, which is, before you build the individual characters, is build the group. This is an element I pushed really heavily when we were setting up this game, Yeah. Um, because I have fallen foul of it in the past. I have started games and had three of my five uh, people turn up playing almost identical characters <laughs> yeah. uh, because they didn't talk about it beforehand. Yeah. You, what you want to do is you want to know how your party is going to work together. You want to make sure they're all working towards the same goals. I have had campaigns in the past completely sunk by the fact that different members of the party were pulling in different directions. And they just, and you can reconcile it. You want conflict. You don't want everything to be easy and simple. You want your characters to have that ability to come in conflict with each other, but you want to know that they are broadly going to pull in the same direction yep. in a general sense. Because otherwise, you risk your party being pulled apart, which more often than not will sink the game. It's a very special group. I The first game I ever played, I was incredibly lucky, and I got to play with a great bunch of um, people who were able to make that work, where the party splintered themselves, pulled themselves apart, but all of the gamers were still great about it, so they formed an entirely new party, and also could run those characters on the side, and it would re-thread back in. I have never... That sounds incredibly complex. Oh, for the GM, it was incredibly difficult. But I've never known that since. I've never known it where if one character wanders off, where you can sustain that and pull them back into the fold, almost always that character gets abandoned and a new one has to get built. And that's, that's on the 
that's on the positive side. Normally, yeah. often it can kill a game. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we the first one of the first things we discussed when we knew who the four players were going to be is what type of character without even deciding any specifics just simply what type of character yeah. we were going to play and we knew that we probably wanted the four classic roles well One, honestly i made that a little bit of yeah. a requirement was that i wanted those classic roles covered because there's a lot of people who haven't ever played these before what absolutely. i would say is as your characters grow you will specialize more absolutely but i strongly advise people in general even if you're experienced there's a lot to be said for starting vanilla and growing into it there's nothing worse than starting with something super specialized and you realize that that's just not what the character wants to be that's not the character you're playing yeah and you can get you can get yourself in trouble you can end up with a, an unplayable character because you're playing super, super saki and talking to loads and loads of people with your charisma of minus 50, but you're amazing at a skill that you've never even used. Absolutely. absolutely. Which is a shame. And you know, you, you want to know that you're going to fit in. If you're playing a diplomatic game where, where three of the four characters are people who enjoy talking through problems and solving them like that, and you're playing someone who's useless at talking and can only fight, yes. you're going to find that the game is a lot less fun. Because yes. you, you, you will switch between the two and you want characters who can get involved in any given situation. Yes. So we went for the classic split. We've got a fighter, a rogue, a cleric, and a, a wizard. Yes. Um, <laughs> Nominally. Ish. Wizard-ish. <laughs> and and that, that is a very classic spread. It means you can you address you know, every problem to at least some degree. And what we, what we went with is James elected to play the fighter because he's the least experienced. Yes. And in general, at least, a fighter is simpler in terms of the rules that apply to them. I would also say that the fighter comes with a trap. And the trap is that when, you, when you're holding a hammer, everyone looks like a nail. <laughs> and the thing with the fighter is you've got to remember that the fighter isn't just a combat beast. They have to exist outside of combat. We, we didn't have any worries. We didn't have any worries yeah. that James would would not get involved in. Yeah, Jam the other James bits. has been really amazing at that. When it came to his story, I've I don't think I ever have encountered someone who managed to make a fighter who was that interesting. Yeah, I mean, I realise yeah. I'm teasing a lot of things here, but it works and fighters can get boring. To, to be honest, they can because people... It's possible. I, I, can't, I cannot imagine Bertie getting boring. No, not really. <laughs> But I, all I mean, though, is that when, when it's a difference between hitting something with a metal stick and commanding the cosmos to your will, it feels yes. like there's a disparity there. But actually, there's a lot of give in both of them if you know what to do. Yeah. And then uh, I think Lyd opted for the rogue-type yes. character because that's something she enjoys and has done a little more often. I mean, she, you know, she has played a bit in the past, but not a huge amount. Certainly not in this system. So me and Ben, as the more experienced role players, knew we'd probably both end up as the casters and... Um, I think I just offered him the choice and we were, would have been happy either way, essentially. Yeah. You will end up finding yourself playing roles a lot at first that are, the, that are similar roles because it feels it feels like what you want to do. But once you get your fill, you'll tend to branch out a bit more. Yeah. Um, I've, I've played yeah. almost every character I can imagine in my many, as we established earlier, many years of role <laughs> playing. So I'm, I'm happy playing anything. And now, you know, I'm playing this uh, sort of very classic example of a halfling sorcerer, which yep. is good fun. Who's you know becoming a dragon? <laughs> if he lives that long, <laughs> keep your fingers crossed for me, listeners. But talking about um, getting parties that will be coherent together, one yep. of the things that has proved difficult in the past, and this is through no fault of player at all, is Sasha. Sasha's a good example of the character that wants to be independent and yeah. break off on their own, and has got perfectly good legitimate reasons to be reticent about joining groups and things. Yeah, and. 
a lot of time was spent talking with Lydia. How do we, you know, how do we rectify yeah, this? Yeah, and sometimes you have to do a little bit of talking outside of character and outside of the game to make sure things head in the right direction. And you need to do that maintenance. Yeah. That's the thing, is a lot of people will set the game up, set it off running and assume it's just a little clockwork doll yeah. that goes off and it just clicks and clacks and clicks. No, you should check in. You should check in after every session Ideally, with, your, yeah. with your party. Yeah, I, I mean, what one of the things I like to do in, in the most recent couple of games I ran as a GM, I would tell my party that they had to start knowing each other and they had to start as an already established group. Who... <laughs> You're telling me that you didn't meet in a tavern? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, and I found that very successful. Now, obviously, we didn't do that for this game because we felt it wouldn't be a very good listening experience yes. if we just jumped into four characters who all knew each other well. But obviously, one of the, things we, one of the little things we did get is that we put in a tiny bit of backstory where Hamid and Bertie knew each other already, yes. which gave us a hook in. We And, you know, we did talk about setting up, even before that very first uh, gaming session, the idea that we'd probably all end up working for Zolf's mercenary company. Yes. And that's not cheating, you know. This is not... This is getting... Making sure the group end up together and end up working together is not breaking the rules. It's making sure the game goes well. Yes. And you can know where you're heading without knowing the specifics of how you get there, and it doesn't damage the experience of the game. Yeah, exactly. You need you need that tie-in in that link. And yeah, things panned out really quite nicely for us actually. I'd say a lot of a lot of canny listeners will have noticed that certainly in later episodes I I'm a lot less strict about where things are going and for the simple reason that is as an advice to all GMs, you will find it easier if you railroad for listeners who don't know what that is, sorry, railroading is where you are... You put the party on tracks, essentially. Effectively. And force them down a single route. Um, forcing, yes, that's the negative side of it. Um, what I would say is, I use railroading a bit loose and free as a term. Yeah, what I would say is you need to be very, not very... Not that negative. You need to be very, very tight in your focus at the start. Yeah. And you want to give limited choices and let people find their way into those roles yeah. by giving them A and B choices, A, B and C choices, before you just go, here is an entire open world, how do we deal with this? And yeah, I'd say that you'll you'll notice certainly as the sessions go on that that, that tightness of focus, now that everyone knows what their reactions are, Absolutely. know how they interact, that's not really necessary anymore. So there's going to be a lot more freedom with it. Yeah, so the, the final thing we really did before we started making our individual characters is we talked about having a group goal is you know we talked about how our roles and yes. which role we'd end up all end up taking but we talked about having a shared goal for the group and if you're a player and you're working with other players to build this you know you your your goal might be you know a heroic goal a classic sort of we are heroes we want to fix the world uh-huh. it might be the classic evil goal we want to acquire power i mean we went for a, a, a more classic mercenary group sure. that was the decision we made the four of us we we wanted to be a group of mercenaries but once you actually prioritised glory over money, yeah. at least some of the time. Yeah. And that was what we decided on a shared goal. And so the idea was to build characters who would be able to fit into the group fit and fit together and all be able to share that as a long-term goal. Yeah, your friend when you're building these characters and working with your GM is the word why. Yes. It's Here's your big group goal. That's fantastic. You can pick any group goal you want. Why? Why does your character care? Oh, they care because of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but why did that happen? Why, why, why? And you have to drill down and drill down and drill down and drill Absolutely. down until eventually you hit something so utterly fundamental. And once you know your role, once you know where your group is going, that's when you can finally work on your individual character, both yes. from the mechanical perspective. And the last thing we're going to talk about today is the backstories. You know, our characters we've written 
pretty long, I think, backstories, you know, the, the history of the character. Yeah. Now, you gave us all a list of what we should include. Do you remember sure. what was on um, that list? Off the top of my head, I used a lot of ones that I've used before. So each character needed to have a secret that the others couldn't know. And part of that was a secret that they keep from almost everyone, because I think it's important to have that secret. It gives yeah. people something to be touchy about. All of them have a fear. All of them have a, a need goal, as it were. And all of them have opinions on certain aspects of the story world. Yeah. And th there's a whole coherent list. I should dig that up at some point. And, that uh, might be interesting, that on yeah. Website. Um, we haven't revealed a lot of what the yes. four pa players wrote in their backstories. That's and we true. won't be doing that today. We don't want to spoil it. I mean, uh, I find when writing a character backstory, um, give them stuff to care about oh, is the most yeah. important thing as well. The rest will follow. Yeah. Um, the, the motivation of each character. Um, and I think we, we were talking about maybe doing another metacast just on backstories, when yeah. some more of it has tumbled out yes, yes. in the course of the narrative of doing one talking about what, what we wrote as individuals. Um, one thing I want to address, though, is in terms of giving things something to care about, one of the most interesting aspects of character backstory, I always find, is family. I And this is not meant as a criticism. I find that people who are relatively new to role-playing almost always write themselves as orphans almost exclusively isn't isn't is that is that your experience as very well? much so but i, I certainly I've, did it when i started yeah i've given it a lot of thought i've i've always thought that actually i did make a i did make it a requirement for everyone's backstory is you can't be an orphan in all senses of the word. Right. You can't be alone in the world. Yeah. You can be an orphan, that's fine. It's sort of an, almost an easy route to motivation. It's it, A lot of the time. Yeah. But it's... The, the problem you can end up with is, I'm 18. My character's 18 and was an orphan. Okay, cool. So who, who raised them? What do you mean? Well, they're 18. Yeah. You have to go through a whole lot of child years with no parents. Someone raised them. And that's the thing is, it, it, sometimes people can use it as a gloss... I am not saying that it is a, a, a bad choice. All I mean is it can sometimes come across as you are trying to get to the action a bit quicker and it's a, it's yeah. a nice tick box choice sometimes. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, James, as we said, this is his first game and he has created an orphan character. But it's an orphan character with a very rich family history and someone who deeply cares and is deeply linked to his family. So it's yes. not quite the sort of classic, I'm an orphan with nothing to care about and no ties and I'm looking to avenge something. It's yes. It's a much com more complex backstory. I would say vengeance that. is the most common one. I think yeah. the character I encountered most is orphan seeking vengeance. I guess it's a very classic fantasy fiction yeah, trope. It, it makes sense. And what I would say that, is... Again, that doesn't mean it's always bad, but it's it's nice to get more links into the world than that, in my experience. I encounter two two types of people tend to pick the vengeance orphan. <laughs> it feels like a build. Um, and that is people who are completely new to it, and it's because, oh, here's a, here's a thing that I can do, and you, you latch onto things. I get it. I, I did the same. The second one I have encountered is people who are deliberately trying to make sure the GM doesn't have any leverage against them. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, I don't, I don't have any, my character doesn't have any people it cares about, so there's no one to get kidnapped. Yes. My character doesn't have any treasured possessions, so none of them can get stolen. You can't manipulate my character through the backstory I've written. I'm going to be honest, you'll have a lot more fun if you let them have yeah, some leverage. Absolutely. That's the point. <laughs> so if you are writing a character backstory, um, do think about that. Give them hooks into the world. Give yeah. them things they care about. Give them a motivation. And um, the other thing I would advise is doing it in concert with the mechanical side of things. It's great to have 
a backstory reason yes. for your major skills and yes. the path you're on in terms of mechanical side of things. Almost always in every game I've run, I've made it a requirement for every single person to have a profession. You'd be amazed how many people <laughs> don't have jobs. Yeah. Unemployment in Fantasyland is just it's just rampant. Hopefully you've noticed some of that these uh, things coming out in the game so far, and hopefully you'll notice uh, more coming up soon. Um, Alex, anything you want to add to that? I think that's the... I feel like I'm out of a job. I feel like I've, <laughs> I've given, I've been mined for all of my information. I've been interrogated, and now Bryn's got his presenting voice on. I, I'm, I'm out of a job. I need to go find myself a new group. Well, hope, hopefully this has been a nice compliment to episode zero. So you saw before the the mechanical side of how we made our characters, yeah. and today you've seen some of the other side of what what got us to where we began yeah. at the beginning of episode one. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed listening to that, and if you've got any other questions for us. Uh, do come along on our forums, rustyquill.com, or email us at mail at rustyquill, or drop us a line on Twitter via at the rustyquill. And uh, we hope to hear from you soon. And if you do end up starting your own game, or let us know. Please come and let us know. We would so much love to hear about anything like that. And any, as I said earlier, any any influences that Rusty Quill has had on you would make us very happy and very excited. <laughs> so we'll uh, talk forward. to you soon. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye. Rusty Quill Gaming is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial International License. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations, and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter at TheRustyQuill or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, it's Helen here, the voice of Azu, Enola and Laverne. Today, I'm here to tell you about Woe Begone, a podcast launched on the RQ network. Woe Begone is a weekly horror sci-fi audio drama series about the nature of power and the implications of linear time. Woe Begone follows Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Woe Begone, spelled woe period begone, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. Have fun, and see you later.